It's a beautiful day today. And since the Pharisees wore too much clothes, and that clearly didn't honor the Lord, I'm dressing down today. It is good to see you all. It's good to be back. I've had a wonderful time. Have missed you too. Missed you too. I've definitely missed you all, most of you. And uh, let's be clear, some of y'all ain't missed me, so that's not, you know. We honest as church, you know. Oh, man. So before I left, I made it clear, abundantly clear, that we would be in the fall when I came back after sabbatical starting a, a series on spiritual warfare. And I am glad that I said that. But I also realized that there is a challenge with doing a series on spiritual warfare. In fact, in doing research and watching other pastors do series on spiritual warfare, many of them go to the go-to verse of spiritual warfare in the New Testament, Ephesians 6.12, which says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I've watched men build and construct a series using this verse and then all the verses underneath it. But I've realized in my study that to take a verse like Ephesians 6.12 and make it the thrust of spiritual warfare it actually presumes that we understand more than we actually do about what's going on in the invisible realm. From Genesis 3.1 to Revelation 20.15, what we call spiritual warfare has been recorded in Scripture in events that have happened both in the material world that we see and also in the immaterial world that we don't see. And we know this. We know this. And on some level, many of us accept this. But our Bible is far more layered with statements that make sense in our world and many that don't. So some of us will come across passages and be like, this is weird. Or I don't agree with this. I don't think I agree with this. I'm not comfortable with what this is saying. So we just chalk it up to either approve, disapprove, or we'll wait till we'll get to heaven. I've done that. But what that actually does is undermine the word of God. Because what it says is, I'm not comfortable with understanding or seeking to understand why God included this particular scene, these words, in the scriptures. Why did he include this particular story? Why is he making this statement? Why are the demons saying to Jesus what they're saying to him? There are names, places, events, and statements that go over our heads because we don't have the same supernaturalistic worldview that those who wrote the Bible and those who lived when the Bible was written have. 
to be honest, and it's no fault of ours, it's just the culture we live in. We live in the culture post-enlightenment where rationality and, and, and science and, and, and reason have superseded for many just faith. You know, Satan went from a formidable, real opponent to a scrawny red devil with a long tail and, pitch, and a pitchforks and horns. Sort of a mischievous. That's not the way the Bible describes him at all. And yet we associate that whenever we see that as the devil. What this has done is caused us to read our Bibles in more of a meological way. So, like, I'm comfortable with this. This is what I understand. I don't really agree with that. You haven't, we haven't even studied it, but we just don't agree with it because we don't like it because it, it forces us to think about God and our Bibles in ways that are just like, oh, it doesn't make sense to me. But the Bible is not written to solely make sense to us, and it's actually not always talking to us. So this series is a spiritual warfare series, but it is not going to be a couple of messages on Ephesians 6. We'll get there in six months. The goal of this series is to look at the Bible and what it's saying, not just through what makes sense to me or what I'm comfortable with, but what made sense to the people who wrote it and what they were comfortable with. How did they understand these stories? Because it was written for us, but it was written to them. What did they really think about these things? See, in our minds, the supernatural world is simply this. God, angels, Satan, and demons. Oh, no. Brothers and sisters, it's much deeper than that. There's a lot more going on than that seesaw of a struggle that we have. And because of the culture we live in, we've given demons and the powers of darkness so much credibility that we're worried about things like, can we even be possessed? So to begin and to do a series effectively on spiritual warfare, we have to step back, way back. And we have to, instead of looking at Ephesians 6 as the end-all, be-all spiritual warfare, we have to step back. And before we even understand a passage like that, we have to develop a supernatural storyline of the Bible. And what I mean by that is this. There are natural things that are happening. This is what's happening in this world. But then there's also a supernatural storyline, what God is actually saying and doing that we don't even consider. We have to understand that. And I promise you that if we do, which we will, we'll never read our Bibles the same again. I'm making a claim, Lord willing, that when this series is done, you will never read your Bible the same again. And you will never have more confidence in your being a Christian than you will. I promise you this. So let's begin. Let's lay some foundation first. This will be somewhat of a dense message because I have to lay foundation a bit before we can even get to the storyline of the Bible. 
the supernatural storyline. We're going to begin at the end in Revelation with a phrase that God said about himself three times in the book. And the reason why we're starting here is because this phrase that is only found at the end of the book and only God says it about himself is what he's been proving and doing to the cosmic powers of darkness throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. Now, some of you might be like, oh, okay, I'm comfortable with that, but I assure you, we will run across some things that you're going to be uncomfortable with, but they're going to be right here in your word, and we're going to talk about them. So let's begin with the first phrase, the first time God says this in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. I'll be using the ESV translation for this series instead of the CSV. Because in my study, I feel like the ESV renders, translates the words better for the supernatural storyline than the CSV translation does. Let's begin. May the Lord be with us. Chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Then he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Have you ever asked yourself, why is God saying things like this? Like, what human beings are rivaling God saying that? Like, why does he need to tell us that he's the Alpha and Omega? Why is it, the Bible's written for people who believe in God. So we've already accepted this reality. Why is God declaring that he is the Alpha and Omega? Why is he telling us that Jesus is coming on the clouds? Well, the natural storyline of the Bible would say, well, he's clearly using Daniel 7 imagery to connect the Old and the New Testaments, and that would be true. Daniel 7 and verse 13 and 14 tells us this. This is clearly in the scriptures. Natural storyline of the Bible. You can get this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is clear in the Bible. It's a natural storyline. This is the imagery that they have. Jesus took these verses and applied it to himself. So when people say Jesus never said that he was God, it's like, well, what did the Pharisees kill him for? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 26. Here's what he says in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. He says this. 
So they're asking to give you backdrop. They're asking, are you, the, are you the son of God or what? And they're referring, they know this Daniel 7 passage. These religious leaders know their Bibles. They have it memorized. They know, even when you say half of a phrase, what you're talking about. And so they're asking him, are you the son of God or what? And it says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. I love these comments from Jesus. And then he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When they heard that, they said, what else do we need to hear? Blasphemy. And they ripped their clothes. You know why they said that? Because he was claiming to be the son of man in Daniel 7 on the clouds. That's the natural storyline of the Bible. And so this imagery of God saying this, he's coming on the clouds. Everyone will see him. He's the Alpha and Omega. That makes sense naturally. But there's a supernatural storyline of the Bible of what's happening here. You see, the Bible was written in a world that's called Greco-Roman, right? So it was the Greeks ruled the world and the Romans took over. And so you had Greek and Roman cultures clashing together and Jews were living in the midst of it. That's why the primary language is written in Koine Greek. So if you take seminary, uh, you go to classes and learn the language, you're going to have to learn a dead language, Koine Greek. The Septuagint is, is, the, is the Old Testament in Greek. And then you have the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament. So Greek was a common language. And the religion and the gods and the narratives of the Greek was pervasive. Just like in our culture. In the same way that people are like, well, I'm spiritual or I'm into Buddhism or all that stuff. It's just common. They know what this means. So God presents this imagery of coming on the clouds. But he is proclaiming this in light of what they say about Zeus. You see, in Greek mythology, this stuff is all like movies and stuff to us, but really, people really believe this stuff. They really believe that the, uh, in Olympus and Titans and gods and Zeus. He was the greatest among the gods of Olympus, and he had power over everything, especially the clouds. Many of us recently saw the terrible Thor movie <laughs> with Zeus looking too soft <laughs> in the movie with thunderbolts and things like this. This is what they thought. In Greek, another name for Zeus was he was called Calephanes, which means gatherer of black clouds. Zeus was often called the gatherer of clouds, causing rain, and on the clouds, looking down, throwing thunderbolts on people. So when God says that Jesus is coming on the clouds, he's proclaiming to those cosmic powers of darkness that created this image of Zeus and say, uh-uh, the cloud gatherer is not Zeus, it's Jesus. 
You said Zeus is coming on clouds. Okay. Because you said that, I'm coming on the cloud. So in Acts 1, when they were watching Jesus go up, the angels were like, what are y'all doing? Why are y'all watching him? He's going to come back on the clouds that he went up on. That imagery is important because God is saying, Zeus who? I'm coming back on the clouds. And everyone will see me. Everyone, even those who pierced me. He said, behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, who pierced him? Because when Jesus comes back, everyone that has pierced him will be dead. Well, there's two kinds of people that pierced him. The natural storyline is Acts 2, 22 through 24. Peter is preaching, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and in your midst, and you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and full knowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here in the natural storyline, Peter is telling them, you all crucified him. Now there, in this scene, there are Jews coming from all over the place. There were Jews that weren't even there and, and may have heard about Jesus through sort of urban legend, but they weren't the ones who were yelling, crucify him. But Peter says, your sins paved the way for him to have to come and die so that you would be forgiven, so you crucified him. Everyone in this room crucified Jesus. That's the natural storyline. But remember... Genesis 3.15. Jesus says this to the serpent we call Satan. After Adam and Eve bite the fruit, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you know when God said that, that every being in the heavenly realm heard that statement? This was not a conversation between God, Adam, Eve, and Satan, but between the whole heavenly host heard him say that. And they had no idea who this he's going to be, but God told them, it's on. And he told Satan, yeah. You're going to pierce him. You're going to bruise his heel. God is declaring, not just to us, but to the cosmic powers of darkness, that the one that you pierced that I told you about in Genesis 3, he's coming back. On the clouds, the true clouds of the false religion that you created and associated with Zeus, And when he comes back, it's going to be clear who the alpha 
and omega is. The alpha and omega are just the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So again, God is using the culture of the day and how they understand language. John does this as well in John 1 when it said Jesus is the word of God. In the Greek, it's the logos. He's taking Greek culture and saying everything that you think that you think your gods are about is actually about Jesus. He's actually the logos. He says, I am the one, the only God who's coming back in clouds. And every being that I have created will recognize and realize Jesus is the cloud gatherer. That's the first time he says this. Here's the second time. Revelation 21. Beginning in verse 3. Here's the second time he says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. We have to understand where this is placed in the Bible. And remember always, this is a Greco-Roman culture. God will take what is ascribed to other gods and say, nah, this is talking about me. Another example of this is in Acts 17. Paul is in the Areopagus. He's preaching to these people who largely subscribe to Greek philosophy. And when Paul is explaining who God is, he says this in 17, verse 28. He says, for in him... We live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This phrase, in him we move and have our being, was talking about Zeus. So Paul is saying, what you think about Zeus, I'm telling you, it's about the unknown God, Jesus. God's doing this throughout the Bible. I'm the Alpha and Omega. And then he gets here. Now, this scene that we just read in, in Revelation 21, where he says, the dwelling place of with God is with men, this takes place immediately after Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where the cosmic powers of darkness and all unbelievers in Jesus Christ are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire. Here's what verse 14 and 15 says in Revelation 20. It's a few verses away from Revelation 21. It says this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This language of death is extremely important in the natural and supernatural world. You see, Jesus came, as told to us in the natural storyline of the Bible, to get rid of death for those who would believe in him by taking it on, by dying and then coming back on his own, proving that death cannot hold him and nor does it hold the people who believe in him. This is important language. Here's what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And I can't wait to come back to this passage in this series. Oh, it's layered. But for our purposes today, here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I mean, he became flesh and blood because we're flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's saying Jesus came to take the, the, the worry of death, people being afraid to die and experience eternal punishment. Jesus came to take that away because Satan had that power. So you fast forward to Revelation 20, the death that Satan supposedly had power over and had authority over is also thrown into the lake of fire. So the death that people, even in this room, who are scared to die, there are believers in this room who are afraid to die because there's a part of you that's just not that confident, not sure what it would look like. What's going to happen? Am I really, is this really true? That fear of death comes from the enemy. And God says here in Revelation 20, let me take death and throw that in the fire. Let me get rid of that. And that's after he gets rid of Satan. Here's Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God is flexing right now. Because he says the devil holds the power of death. So I'm going to take the devil and throw him in the lake of burning fire. I'm going to take death and get rid of it, throw it in the lake of fire. And then just to show you who has the power over death, I'm going to call that the second death. <laughs> who holds death? The devil? Right. He's in there and I'm going to call it the second death. Well, God is talking, and it's not just to us, and it's not just about us. He says in Revelation 21, our second point, that I am dwelling with these folks to the dwelling place of man is with God. I will dwell with them. I'll be among them. Death is gone. So these people who are with me live forever with me and me with them. This imagery is very important because it represents the end of the power struggle 
of supernatural beings interacting with humanity, dwelling in us to subvert, to stop God from dwelling in us. Demons, the Bible says consistently, I don't know how often you're aware of it, but whenever you see Jesus casting out a demon, there's only a couple times you'll see the word possessed. Most times you'll see the word oppressed. A person was oppressed by a demon. Demon cast a woman who was bent over for 17 years and couldn't stand up. She was oppressed, not possessed, but oppressed. These demons seek to possess and oppress people and they dwell in them to make their lives worse. Here's evidence. Jesus says this in Luke 11, 24 to 26. He says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Oh, I can't wait to come back to this passage. That's later in the series. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And that last state of that person is worse than the first. It would be biblical to call spiritual warfare the dwelling wars. The dwelling wars. Who's dwelling with humanity? Yahweh? Jesus? The Alpha and Omega? Or the cosmic powers of darkness? It's the dwelling wars. Who's going to win this war? From the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus to believers being the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 2, this spiritual warfare is happening all the time. It's the dwelling wars. And in Revelation 21, God says, war is over. The language is important. War is over. I won. I'm dwelling with these people. They will be with me and I'll be with them. Cosmic powers of darkness, the one who holds the power of death is in the second death. So much for your power, fam. God is declaring that he will dwell, not the cosmic powers of darkness, that they, that they look like they're winning the dwelling wars now, but they're not. Remember, this is meant to encourage the believers. It's meant for us to look around and look at the world we live in and be like, okay, all right. It's meant to encourage us that if we believe in Jesus, he's dwelling in us. And we're living today in light of the day where he would dwell with us and we'll see him and all of that is there. And so he paints this scene in, in, in Revelation 21. And says, I'll be with them. Not only will I be with them, I'm going to wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm going to take away all of the suffering and all the hurt they've gone through. And in Revelation 22, the tree of life is there. And it says, this will be for the healing of the nations. 
God says this in Revelation 21, 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You notice he adds another statement. First it was Alpha and Omega. Now it's the beginning and the end. He's making sure he's clarifying. Alpha and Omega. Okay, for those who don't know what Alpha and Omega is, it's a, it's a metaphor for the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. But this is not a claim that God has to make to us because we believe in him. None of us are rival in this claim. God's not making this claim to us. We have faith in him, whether he said that or not. Remember Jesus told Thomas, well, you see because you believe. Blessed are those who do not see me and believe. He's not making this claim to us. God is telling the cosmic powers of darkness that he's the beginning and the end. Remember who made you, who allowed you to exist. You know how when, you, when I was younger and I'd get in trouble or I'd talk back to my mom, there were certain statements that she would make to help me remember the authoritative structure in the house. Phrases like, boy, I brought you in this world and I can take you out. <laughs> Phrases like that, just to let you remind, I don't care how, I remember one time my mom said, I don't care how big you get, I'm your mother and you will not overpower me. And I believed every word of it. For whatever reason, I was like, man, I believe my mom. I thought she had superhuman strength. And if I ain't believe it, she believed it. God's declaration is putting the cosmic powers of darkness in their place. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and omega. No other supernatural being can say that statement and it be true. They can do things that we can't, and they are definitely given power and authority in this world, which we'll get to in this series. But no other being can say, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And it be true. God is flexing. This isn't for us. He's making that claim to them. The cosmic powers of darkness. And they know this. Remember in Mark 5 when Jesus walked up to the man who had a bunch of demons in him and they ran up to him and they said, what, what are you doing? I'm paraphrasing. What are you doing here, Jesus? Have you come to put a, to, to uh, uh, send us, destroy us before the appointed time? They said that to him like, look, we know what's going on. Are you coming to destroy us before the appointed time? Jesus was like, he ain't the answer. He said, man, what's your name? <laughs> what's your name? Oh, man, have you ever wondered why it took legion, means thousands, why it took so many demons to go inside one human being? If they're so powerful, why does one demon, thousands of them have to go in one human being to cause them to wreak havoc, and Jesus can immediately take them out like that? Oh, wait till we come back to that story. 
There's a lot more going on here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is making a claim to them. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Y'all can't say that and it be true. And he proves this throughout the Bible. That the supernatural storyline is God doing this. Wait till we get to Exodus and the plagues. And when you see that the, the, the cosmic powers of darkness could duplicate the plague, but they couldn't end it. They could make more frauds, but they couldn't get rid of them. Um, y'all not, oh, man, I'm going to tell y'all something. Man. We, the third time that, that God says this, he adds another caveat. The third time he says this is Revelation 22, verses 10 through 13. He said, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right. and The holy still be holy. This is crazy. This crazy verse. Because the God who wants all people to repent is telling people, okay, you don't have to believe. Don't believe. Keep doing your evil. Keep doing your evil. Do what you do. You want to be filthy? Be filthy. Scary words coming from God. This is from the God of love. Saying, continue to do you. Keep doing it. You know why he said that? Because it doesn't change the fact that I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Keep that same energy. Now, he never commands us to tell people that. There's a difference. There's a difference, right? The Alpha and the Omega can say that. He never says, tell people, yeah, go to hell. You're going to hell. He never says that. We're supposed to help people not go. He can say, y'all keep doing what you do. Because when I come back, I remember everything. And the technology that I use to stream your life, all of us are going to see it. He says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, reward, with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Notice the additions. The first Alpha and Omega, he said, I'm the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come. The second time he said it, he added the phrase, the beginning and the end. The third time in this passage he says it, he adds the first and the last. He's building on each of these. And when we come back to this later on in the series, we'll see that this is the Father, Son, and Spirit representing themselves as Alpha and Omega with different functions and different responsibilities, and God making sure that, I'm not saying this once, all three persons of the Godhead are declaring that I'm the Alpha and Omega. It's not just the Father or the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's all three of us are saying this. We're all unified. And each time we say, we make sure you understand that this is how it's been from the beginning to the end, the first and the last. There's no other supernatural being that can make this claim, and it'd be true. God is saying, look, I'm the last God standing. 
the last guy standing. I'm the only one that has the rewards and the punishments. Each declaration of Alpha and Omega is a further clarification. And this is being played out all through the, the Bible. This supernatural storyline is played out with God proving. I love that he waited until the last book of the Bible to say these words. This is him proving, proclaiming. This is what I've been doing to you boys the whole storyline of the Bible. And if we're not cued in, we'll miss it. Now, this is pretty easy and comfortable. I started here on purpose. So I don't want you to be overwhelmed yet. This is easy. But I want to show you an example something, a very popular example that we're aware of, of how God has been doing this, the whole storyline of the Bible. We're going to start with, let's start with this. When Jesus, you guys know the popular phrase, this is Matthew 16, 15 through 18. When I read this, you'll be, oh, yeah, I know the story. Let's look at it. Jesus says this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Very popular story that we're aware of. But there's a supernatural storyline happening right here. You see, when people take this phrase, you are the rock, and on this, and on the, you are Peter, and on this I will build my church. If you're Catholic, you think Peter is the head of the apostles the rock and so you created a whole religion with these pope and sort of a hierarchy right and if you're not if you're protestant like us then the rock is the proclamation that jesus made because jesus is the rock but there's more there's more now keep in mind that Jesus is perfect, right? Everything he says he does is the will of the Father. So everything he says, everything he does, and everywhere he goes is the will of the Father. And there's a reason. When Jesus went to this location, it's called in the New Testament Caesarea Philippi. That's what it's called. Whenever you see that, that's, it's called Caesarea Philippi. But that was the Greek name. That was the New Testament name. And for us, that means nothing to us. See, we order pizza from Little Caesars. I mean, we, you know, here at Caesars, we say, okay, I mean, it means nothing to us. 
But these places are supremely important. And Jesus knows this. So when he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and asks them this question, he is standing at the foot of a mountain. And where this place is, was a place of worship of the pagan god Pan and Zeus. In the Old Testament, it was the place where Baal, a Satan figure who was called the Lord of the dead, was worshipped. And what's more crazy is that that location had a cave that's still there today. And that cave was known by the pagan worshipers as the Gates of Hades, in which all the demons and the strength of the power and hell comes through this particular cave. So Jesus goes to this place and says, who do they say that I am? And when they say, you are the Christ, the Son of God, he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. It wasn't just Peter's proclamation. It was where they were standing. I'm going to start the church right where this gates of hell is, and they can't do nothing about it because I am the Alpha and Omega. Jesus was standing right in front of the gates of Hades that the Canaanite religions called that and says, this is where I'm starting my church. And here's the problem with the translation. See, it says the gates of hell will not stand against it, but against is not in the Greek. The better translation would be cannot withstand it. Jesus wasn't saying the church is going to be having to fight the powers of darkness. but uh, No, he was saying the church is bringing the offensive. I am starting it right now. In the gates of Hades, and they can't do anything to stop the church. They can't withstand what I'm about to do. Oh, Jesus was flexing. But we're not done. There's one more. One more scene that we're going to look at before we close. In Matthew 17. Very popular scene. We know this story. Verses 1 through 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So this scene is six days later after Jesus is standing in front of the cave, the gates of Hades, where evil is supposed to have authority. Six days later, Jesus goes up a mountain, which is considered by many who of this day the place where the Canaanite gods are worshipped and the angels who rebelled against God came from this mountain to attack humanity. That Jesus and those, the Jews who were there understood that they're going up a mountain that was largely associated as the, one of the greatest points of evil and darkness in their region. The angels rebelled against God. The Canaanite gods of Mesopotamia and Babylon, they were worshipped on this mountain. It's the highest concentration of supernatural darkness 
And it was at the foot, the bottom of it was the gates of Hades. Jesus goes up there and he transfigures. Why that place, Jesus? Because that place is the greatest, in their day, concentration of evil and darkness. And it's there that Jesus lights up. Jesus was telling the powers of darkness, hey, y'all remember Genesis 1? When I showed up and said, let there be light, I'm in your hood. I'm lighting up. You can't stop me because I'm the alpha and the omega. Jesus went to the top of this mountain and told the cosmic powers of darkness, I'm outside. I'm outside. I'm in your hood. I'm outside. The gates of hell can't do nothing. You can't do anything. I'm on your mountain where you worship, where people are scared of you, and I'm going to go ahead and light up just for a minute. And not only that, I'm going to go ahead and bring Moses and Elijah down to have a conversation with them in your neighborhood. I'm outside. Jesus is picking a fight. He's not afraid. I'm outside. I'm in your neighborhood. Baal, Satan, Zeus, Marduk. We all at? Jesus has been proving he's the Alpha and Omega, and God has been proving it in different ways throughout. All these scenes are strategic. This is not Jesus just randomly doing stuff. He's going to where people fear the most and being like, let's camp here. Let's go to the gates of Hades, and that's where, that's where the first confession of who I am will be in front of the place where people think is a stream that the, 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 the demonic beings come and go from. Jesus said, please, let's declare who I am in front of this cave. And then let's go to the top of their mountain. Let me show you who I am. What you declared six days ago, Peter, let me make sure you know I wasn't just saying that God revealed that to you, that it's true. So let me glow up so you can see who I am on a place that is known for darkness. That's why when they came down the mountain, there was a crowd of people trying to cast a demon out of a boy. Remember that when they came down? Because there was so much demonic activity that as soon as they came down the mountain, in front of the gate, there was a boy who was possessing a, and, and they couldn't get it out. But Jesus was like, how long has he been doing that? His father told him, and he said, come out of him. He shook violently, and the boy was back. It's right after the transfiguration. This is all strategic because the supernatural storyline of the Bible is happening. But if we don't have that understanding, we'll appreciate the stories. We'll love them but not realize, hold on. What is happening here? And what's happening that I don't see? So church, we're not going to just go to Ephesians 6 and talk about what is 
the spirit of Jezebel's spirit and all this stuff that people use and let's interpret dreams. We're not even there yet. We'll get to all of that. But first, we got to realize, wait a minute. There is a supernatural storyline happening in this book that I'm not as clearly aware of. And once we see that, then let's start dealing with some of the practical things. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's what's happening the whole time. And we are going to have a good time these next few months as we look at this story and be like, whoa, wow. Some stuff is going to blow us away. Some stuff is going to make us be like, I don't like this. <laughs> but it's in the Bible. And if we're going to seriously grow in our understanding and really, I think, be grown and own, we have to start with growing more mature in the book that gives us our knowledge and our identity. So we're not just changing the building. We're changing the way we see the Bible so that it changes the way we see us. Jesus never intended for the people that believe in him to have any fear of any darkness. That all comes from Hollywood. I want the holy word, not Hollywood. So by his grace, we'll enter in. Let's pray. Father, as I've prayed to you the last few weeks and even before I came up here, I pray that you would open up the eyes of your sons and daughters and help them see the reality here. Everything I'm saying, Lord, can be researched, proven. Father, you know I'm making nothing up. But Lord, we're, we're a couple thousand years away from these stories and you've given us faith. So it's not like we need these stories to believe in you. We already do. But there's more going on than we understand. And some of the attacks against your word are because we're not aware of the supernatural storyline of the Bible and what's happening. We have a minimal, a reductionistic view of what's happening. We don't always understand why you said this where you said it and why you went to this place and what this means. We don't understand the significance of you giving people land and why the land is important. We don't understand the significance of the Tower of Babel. So, Father, I pray that you would give each of us both the grace, the insight, and the excitement to read your word afresh. Being faithful to what the Bible teaches and not making stuff up, but just helping us go a level deeper, layers deeper than what we honestly thought so that we can, as your word says in Ephesians 4, 
so we can together mature, be presented mature in you. Some of our immaturity is due to our misunderstanding of what's happening in your word. So Lord, as, as you see fit and whatever glorifies you, use me and Mike and, and everyone to, to help make this a reality so that we can be freshly encouraged. For the excitement that they express today, Lord, you and I know is nothing compared to what we're going to see in the next few months of you just demonstrating you're the Alpha and Omega and why, why you let certain things happen. There are things that you let take place that to us are questionable, that seem harsh, mean, that some people even walked away from the faith because how could you allow evil and suffering? Oh, there's another storyline here. And I pray that you would use that to help us grow deeper for your glory and our good. Lord, you've given me the kind of personality that likes to be excited and proclaim truth, but this has nothing to do with who's preaching this. This isn't about me or my tone or my confidence. It's about you. And these insights are in your word. Anyone can say what I'm saying now. So this is about your glory, not my style of delivery or anything. I'm making, saying nothing new, just pointing out what I, to my shame, didn't observe clearly was always there. So Lord, in this series, for however long it goes. Help us to see things we've never seen before or to understand things better than we had before so that we can be grown and own our faith in your word in a much more deeper way. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, remember that if you have any questions for the Q&A, you can text those as it shows up on the screen. Can somebody grab me a, a communion, too? I don't want to forget to uh, 240-623-8076. We already have a couple questions in, uh, so we'll get right to it. Uh, the first one is, there are Christians who believe that deliverance or casting out demons is a work of every Christian. Is that biblical? That casting out demons is the work of every Christian. Is it biblical? No. What's biblical is resisting the devil so that he flees from you. What's biblical is bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. Uh, but casting out demons? Biblical? No. Helpful when it when the time presents itself? Sure. But there was a reason why the disciples in Mark 6 were given the authority to cast out demons and why those stories continue in the book of Acts. But you don't hear about them in the letters to the churches. And we'll get to that in the series. 
next, do you think that uh, the gods and myths and other god uh, and other gods from uh, and gods from other cultures like Zeus, Baal, uh, etc., uh, were real things, uh, i.e., demons? <laughs> so, yes and no. When gods, oh man, how do I, I know what's coming, so I'm trying to think, how do I want to say this? So here's what I would have said years ago. There's no such things as other gods. It's just God and Satan. I don't think that's true. That's not true. When Jesus, when God says that I am the most high, the most high God, and when he says these gods, there's a difference between idols, actual figures that he says are, and gods, right? False gods are not always demons. Demons are something else. And in fact, in this hierarchy of the cosmic powers of darkness, demons are actually on the bottom. So they may be influenced by demons, but God doesn't say, I'm the most high God over gods that aren't true. And I'm going to just stop there because I know where we're headed. I'm going to just stop there. There's things that I remember I thought like, no, nah, this is simply this guy. No, 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 no. He's making these statements because they're true, but he's distinguishing himself from them. And we're going to see this. There's a couple scenes in your Bible that you're going to be like, wait a minute. The Q&A may be longer than the sermon. So I, I think demons are given a high, and they're actually low level. In fact, demons, so I'm going to do this in a, in a future message. We, 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 we associate things as names, and they're actually describing jobs. Yes. So like angels are really just mean messengers. Yes. Angel is a messenger. Why is Michael called the prince? <laughs> Angels are messengers, and demons are disembodied spirits, but have a certain function. A lot of, like, like, like Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not like Jesus' first name. Like, Jesus Christ here? No, it's like, no, Christ is actually a designation. Even the word Satan is not a name. In the original language, is a definite article, the, is always presented as the Satan. So Satan is not his name. In fact, the name Lucifer came from a translation. Man, Lucifer came from, because I know where we're headed. It's like, uh. so the word Lucifer is, 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 is translated in, when the Bible was written in Latin, right? And then he, in Lucifer. So, uh, we, yeah, we're going to get to a lot. There's a lot we're going to talk about. There's things that I was like, oh, man. I've been preaching for 14 years, and I never saw this? You got to be kidding me. This stuff, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm wild. You might, man, let me go. Uh, man, you don't need me. All this time, I could have told y'all this stuff. I just didn't know it. I didn't see it as clear. I saw parts of it, but what we're going to see is a real serious storyline. So I think those false gods are very real. I think they're very real. And I think God intended for them to be very real for a purpose that's partly connected to He's the Alpha and Omega. It's probably connected to that. But you're going to see they're very real. But demons, 
are like, they, they like, the, the people that you'd be like, man, go to the store and get me some chips. And if they got, if they got, if they got a cherry soda, bring me some cherry soda too. Those are the corner boys. Like, go get me some chips, man. Keep the change. Demons are not as significant as we think. Not as significant as we think. So anyway, all oh, this, oh man, y'all just don't know what we get ready to do. I'm excited. All right, so you mentioned uh, the 14 years. This person's question is, how were you able to realize the significance of small details such as locations in the bigger picture and where do you get that, the history and information from? Uh, so here's what I think. I think I do this. I think a lot of us do this. The Bible is the word of God that's important, but we typically read the Bible from what we relate to. Like, what is it saying to me, right? That's why many of us don't read Obadiah, right? When's the last time you read Zephaniah? You just don't read it because it doesn't really pertain to you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything in it. We just read the New Testament. It's about Jesus, and, then just, and, and, we, and we read the imperatives. Do not do this and do, do that. We, so you read the Bible from what do I need to be a Christian? Do I need this supernatural? No, I don't. But I want to grow deeper in my understanding of God's word. I don't want to just regurgitate. And I've always been this way. You guys have always known me to read things and be like, wait a minute. I'm not going to just say stuff that's just regurgitated because it's safe. So I think, one, I think I and many people just read what's necessary. And we think like meologians, like, what is this saying about me? And since I, Obadiah has nothing to do with me, mm -hmm. Zephaniah or even the, even, I mean, many of us don't even read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, none of them books. We're like, man, this is a long, boring book to me. And it's like, ah. So, so I think that's part of it. So I think what happens is I decided, you know, the Internet is a gift and a curse, right? So the Internet, we can get a lot of information from the Internet. But the Internet is not where you get, like, scholarly work. Like, scholars are not putting their papers on the Internet and going, you can't go to YouTube and get... You have to be able to read like more scholarly work, peer-reviewed articles, um, you know, primary sources. And so I just decided, you know what? I got friends who, like I got my, one of my best friends, he's, when I fly out to San Francisco, I'm always preaching at his church. He's PhD in historical theology. So they're just people I was like, man, I need to read, I need to get sharper. I need to read deeper stuff and not just, I wanna read other stuff and see what's talking. So now I'm reading these articles like, whoa, wait a minute. And then I'm trying to get to the primary sources and reading this stuff and being like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a thing? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Oh. And I'm, so a lot of it has just been interaction with, with a lot of these, this type of material and realizing, like, wow, these are the kinds of things that Carl, these are the kinds of things that Carl would go to ETS, Evangelical Theological, uh, 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 um, it's, it's like a conference, and hear papers written. And it's all the... There's like a whole other level of understanding that you go to seminary and hear other people explain. But even then, they don't always explain some of the stuff that we're going to look at. Because a lot of the, and then I think, long answer, but I think also, you know, we, we, you have to understand the age that we live in, right? So we go, you get the 17th century, the age of enlightenment. That lasts a long time, right? And when enlightenment comes, it's the first, one of the biggest real attacks on Christianity. Because the enlightenment comes and you get like science, right? The rise of science and the scientific method, which is like hypothesis, analysis, proof. And so it's all about evidence, right? 
you get reason. You know, the, the, the uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, right? That all, and the, and the phraseology is important. There, I think, therefore I am, right? I'm God. I can think like, I don't need God. I can think and be God, right? So we get, we, we, we're living in an age where that has been so pervasive in society that even a lot of our theology, seminaries, and apologetics is reacting to the, the, the Enlightenment age. And so we're, we're not as focused on the supernatural things, but on things that we can clearly, almost using a scientific method theologically. Mm -hmm. Right, we can prove this, we can prove this. So apologetics changes to now, you know, you, you got people who aren't using certain, like the ontological argument, the being of God, or now it's trying to prove because we're dealing with reason in ways that they weren't dealing with that in the Bible. They just, they had a supernaturalistic worldview. They understood that gods exist and they do this and they do that. They weren't thinking like, man, I don't know about, you know. No, they had, no, they were, they, they, I mean, you, you had, you know, what you had, Pilate being like, well, what is truth? But again, they had a, a robust way to understand the world that didn't have anything to do with science. And so we live in a post-science society. And so now, and then we live in a technological society. It's like, let me just Google this. And you think this paper is really someone's just blog. It's like, this is just a blog. This isn't scholarly work. There's no primary sources here. So now if I read something that I like, if you can't point me to where you got this from, I, I don't even... I can't trust it. I need to read four or five articles to see that other people are saying this. So I'll make some of those resources available through the series so that you can read them, but I don't have a syllabus right now. Right now, we just, we just going, we need a couple of messages of laying foundation before we actually get to the supernatural storyline itself. Uh, so are you going to, uh touch on uh, the book of Enoch at all? Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to. We have to. Because for the Jews who wrote the Bible, they... Okay, so... All right. So the Bible... The Bible that we have was not the Bible that they had. Right? You can go... If you read in the Old Testament, you'll, re, you'll hear phrases like this. And... And, the, and this account is written in the book of Annals of Kings or whatever. There's a lot of other resources that the Jews mm -hmm. believe to be solid because it was still a, that they used in their thinking. Mm -hmm. And Enoch, first Enoch was a book mm -hmm. that was, it was heavily debated. Mm -hmm. Should it be in the canon of scripture? The primary reason it's not is because it's pseudepigrapha, which means it's associated with someone that they don't think really wrote it. Mm -hmm. They think Enoch was written like fifth century, what long after it happened. So they don't think, this is Enoch who, who went to heaven to be with God, right? Mm -hmm. This is Enoch from Genesis 5. They don't think it was associated with Enoch, and so they didn't want to put it in the canon of Scripture. The only book that really made it through that I'm aware of, and I could be wrong, but I think the only book that made it in the Bible that they don't know who wrote it is Hebrews. And the reason why it made it was because the Christology was so rich. There was the, whoever wrote that definitely believed in Jesus, right? So you can't deny that. But Enoch is huge. It's huge in terms of understanding what the Jews thought and why Peter said what he said in 1 Peter 2. Why Jude mentions Enoch and the rebellion of the... Why all of that stuff happens. And where, why a lot of the Jews believed 
that in Genesis 6, there were angels that came and had sex with women and not Sethite tradition. And all. we'll talk about all of that. We'll get into all of that. So, yeah, that's coming. Based on your uh, answer there, this is probably a duh question, but since it came in, uh, so that means you're talking about the Nephilim as well. Oh, we're going to get into all that. That's a part of the supernatural storyline of the Bible. You can't. So I'm going to say this. And I'm going to prove, I think I'm going to prove the claim when we get to this part. I don't think you can disbelieve that angels left heaven to have sex with women and created the Nephilim. I don't think you can disbelieve that and understand the supernatural for long of the Bible. I don't think you can think, I don't know if I believe that because the virgin birth is God saying, I'm the Alpha and Omega because you created human beings by having sex with women. I created the only one without it. Well, we're not there yet. You're making me jump ahead. We're not there yet. Because I think if I say too much out of pocket, I'm like, I don't know about this. This, is, this isn't science fit. Kurt didn't become a heretic over the summer. This isn't, this isn't Christian science movie theater, right? This is, this is a supernatural storyline that I intend to prove everything that I'm saying. And you can still not believe it if you want to. That's on you. I'm going to present to you the facts, and then you can, you, you can hash it out. But, I, but you guys know me enough to know that I don't present things. And if I say I, I'm not sure, I will say I can't prove this from the scriptures. Amen. But if I can prove it from the scriptures, I'm not saying I can't prove it from the scriptures. So we're going to get into all of that. We, just, we haven't even got started yet. We just got to clarify. Right now, we have to kind of do a glossary of terms for the next couple weeks. Like, what does this mean? So now we know what Alpha and Omega is. What does this mean? What is the Bible? You ever heard the argument, oh, Christianity is fake because it borrows from the other Canaanite religions and the Kemetic religions and all of that stuff, and the Jews took the Babylonian traditions and didn't know about hell or devil. They borrowed it from them. Oh, I can't wait to address that. Because that, to me, when you say that, That, to me, is just a lack of a supernatural understanding of the Bible. You have to remember that every cosmic being heard God tell Satan, this woman is going to give birth to a seed and is going to get rid of you. And they have no idea who that is. Why do you think Cain kills Abel? Because Abel's righteous. They have no idea who this is and when it's coming, and it creates a dynamic throughout the story of the Bible that is huge, that's going on, and God lets it go on for a purpose that we're going to unveil throughout the process. Wow. He lets us go on so that he can show, nah. Remember the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel? Yeah. It's happening, the whole storyline of the Bible. <laughs> Elijah was up there like, all right, go ahead, worship. Make it, tell your God to make it rain. They dancing and doing all this wailing and cutting themselves up. And I, I think Isaiah was just like this. <laughs> the whole time. I think Isaiah was just like this, man. Laughing. That's like, no, Duke, go some more. Go a little longer. Take your time. Take your time. Then when it's his turn, he says, all right, let's sacrifice an animal right here. 
Pour some water on it. Pour a little bit more. Pour more water on it so it's so, so watery that water's coming down the sides and creating a, a pond. And then he says, praise the Yahweh, and the flame comes down, and that thing is dry as a bone. Flexing. God is just like, yeah, go ahead and worship your gods. I'm not even going to stop you. I'm not going to stop your stories. I'm going to let them go. I'm just not going to let them have the impact that my story has. It's not going to happen. There's a book I got called The 16 Crucified Messiahs Before Jesus. So they're saying that basically these are similar stories before Jesus' Christianity is fake. Okay. Okay. Then why don't none of them stories have any impact in the world? How is it that Jesus has all the impact? You can't go almost anywhere and not hurt the name Jesus. In fact, the greatest rival religion is, is Islam, and Islam calls Jesus the word of God. I know Muslims that have gotten saved because the Quran speaks higher about Jesus than it does about Muhammad who wrote it. We're going to talk about a lot of things. So I'm excited to go through all of this. We're going to, it's, going to be, it's going to get crazy in here. But not crazy because it's like kooky stuff. It's just like, wow, there's, there's, this stuff is going on. So yes, the word of God is us. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us for our sins, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. The things that happen and why God let some of those things happen, things that we would call evil or this and that, they're going to make a lot more sense when we look at the supernatural storyline of the Bible. Okay, this uh, last question is one that you anticipated, and I think you may have already addressed it some, but, um, but can spirits possess and oppress believers? like explained in Luke 11, which you read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can they oppress? Sure. Can they possess? A, a real, now, now some people, let me make a distinction. There are people that profess to be Christians, and we might think they are, but God knows who is and who isn't. And the demons know who is and who isn't. I told you the story when I was in India, and there was a lady who was clearly possessed sitting on this stoop. We were walking down this crazy village to preach the gospel, and she's sitting there in a circle, and then she starts talking in a clearly demonic voice and said, I've been with her for 38 years. She is not going with you. But the first thing they said to us is, what are you doing here, sons of the living God? When we heard that, everybody was like, bring all the demons out. We was... It was like we was on steroids out there. We was like, what? I mean, the demon said, what are you doing here, sons of the living God? You cannot have her. And then, and then someone opened the door and snatched her into this little house. And we were all, first it was kind of like creepy. And then it was like, hold up. They could see in us. And we was like, man, bring them all out. Like, bring them out. T.I., bring them out, bring them out. We was like, bring them all out. We wanted to, I mean, it was crazy. We got... Some of us got a little, I got a little too bold, but I wanted, I was like, man, show me where you, I was, I was like, Jesus, I'm outside, but it's like, but I ain't, I can't transfigure, so it was a little, so I was like, I'm outside, like, I want to talk, like, I'm, it's just, it's, di it's different, it's different, it's a lot different, it's a lot different than, than in the scriptures, it's a lot, it's not just experience, it's a lot different, so yeah, deep, Christians can be oppressed, yeah, that's what their job is, to bother us, to get into us, to affect us. I mean, don't forget, I mean, I mean, Job didn't have the Holy Spirit, but he was affirmed by God himself. He said, look, this is a righteous man. 
Oh, and there's a reason why God did that. There's a reason why God did that. And we're going to cover all that. But yeah, God was like, yeah, you can go ahead and tell. I mean, you would be surprised how many times the stuff we go through mm-hmm. is God being like, have you tried? Have you tried my servant Dean? Have you tried Carl? You'd be surprised. It's like, nah, you ain't. You're not shaking their faith. You're not shaking their faith. Have you tried my servant Manny? Have you tried my servant? You're not shaking their faith. Some of that is God saying, the faith that I've given them is stronger than what I'm allowing you to do to them. Okay, let me, let me, let me harm them. Let me, let me let somebody betray them and watch them walk away from me. He says, all right, go ahead. And they're still here. Still believe. Let me afflict them with some illness. They can't even understand. The doctors don't even know. I bet you they'll get offended then. Go ahead. Because the faith I've given them, it comes from the alpha. Mm. See, what Satan thinks about us is that we're circumstantial. Mm. He thinks we're circumstantial. That's what he said. That's what he said to Job. He said, he said, have you tried my servant Job? Of course he believes in you. Because his life is easy. You give him everything. He's not touched. Take some of that stuff away. The circumstances change him, and he'll reject you. It's the same thing he thinks about us. Because Job, what he said, was righteous. Well, he had the same thing about us. Okay, affect him. Let me do this. Can I, am I allowed to shake this up and do this in their lives? And God will say, okay. And for us, it's like, oh, my gosh. Why is God is saying, listen, the faith I've given you is a spiritual storyline going on. And sometimes our faith, God's like, Lon, go ahead. You can do that. Go ahead. Take their loved ones. Go ahead. Change their physical circumstances. Go ahead. Or bless them with a lot of prosperity and they'll forget about you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Make their marriage difficult. All right, go ahead. God's like, look, the faith that I've given them, it comes from me. And when it's real, they're not going nowhere. Doesn't mean they're going to like it, but it means they're going to trust me in it. And there's so much of what goes on that we see that we think, like, why would a good God? Because he's saying, look, you can't hurt the people that I got in a way that makes them walk away. So the people that do, when you do walk away, that's why John says, look, if they, if they walk out from us, they were never with us in the first place. Because the people that belong to God is like, nah, they got, we got the alpha and omega faith. We got that. It's like, look, we're going to go through some things, but it's not because God is mad at us. It's because God is like, look, this is a story. This is, this is, we're part of the storyline of the Bible. And so all this stuff is like, wow. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every time something happens to us, God and a cosmic power of darkness are like, hey, have you tried uh, Hassan today? <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that that's what ha- that conversation happens, but that story was put in the Bible so that we would understand the dynamic. Remember that, that the, the enemy could do, he, he could do everything, but God, but he was restricted. He could have killed him. God said, you can do all this, but don't kill him. You can do all this, but don't kill him. He could do it. So can we be oppressed? Yeah, we can be affected. We can be physically harmed. Can we be possessed though? Nah. Because that would be incongruent with who God is. Be like, nah, you can, those who really believe, now again, we don't always know who really believes, but so yeah, we gonna we gonna we we. The Lord is the word is something else, and I think we are gonna see it. Lord willing, in the next few months. So let's let's 
close appropriately with remember 